This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, this is Doro. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 3rd. Due to the pandemic, this year, the conference will be held virtually, and all are welcome to join. You'll be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Jay Perman became the fifth chancellor of the University System of Maryland in January of 2020. And his tenure has been a challenge from the start with the world as it is today. Among many other distinctive positions, Dr. Perman served as president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore for almost 10 years and started his career as a pediatric gastroenterologist who understands this crisis is more than a disease. It's about disease burden and how the burden is borne disproportionately by vulnerable populations and racial minorities. As chancellor, Dr. Perman is strongly committed to social justice and making sure that every person in Maryland who wants an education gets one. Trisha and I think, after doing a good amount of research, that you're the right leader at the right time. Welcome, Dr. Perman. Thank you, Doro. Thank you, Trisha, for having me here. So we're going to begin with a very broad question. How did you get here? And tell us a little bit about yourself. I was born in Chicago to two parents who were immigrants from the Ukraine. They fled persecution in the Ukraine. They came to America and to Chicago. They were people who were educated, but they couldn't make a living off their education. They opened up a hand laundry and dry cleaner, and I was their only child. And I knew from the age of five, I would say, that I wanted to be a physician. And that was my dream. My father was a two-pack-a-day smoker. And as you both know, one of the complications of smoking, apart from lung cancer, is esophageal cancer. And he developed esophageal cancer, which even today, despite all our progress in medicine, is a terrible disease. And he dwindled and died very quickly. I was 13 years old. I mentioned that my mother had this hand laundry that she couldn't operate herself. So she went back to her innate ability, which was to be a seamstress. She could sew and she made hats. Well, she worked in those days in what we used to call a sweatshop where you didn't get paid by the hour. You got paid by the hat. So you needed to hustle and you didn't make an extraordinary living that way. And I wanted to be a physician, which even in those days was an expensive proposition for any family. But I was fortunate, and I was accepted to Northwestern University, which was an elite institution. Tuition was a pretty penny. And they were nice to me. They gave me scholarship and work-study money and a loan, and I got through undergraduate school. And then there was medical school. So I applied to Northwestern, and they accepted me. But here was my mother, the seamstress, 
we had no idea how we were going to pay my tuition in medical school. And one day, about three weeks before I was supposed to show up, I got a letter in the mail. It said, congratulations, you are the Ploner Scholar. Your medical education is paid for. So look at that. I grew up in the back of a hand laundry. And now, as you point out, I'm privileged to be the chancellor of a distinguished university system and everything in between that's happened to me. So as corny as this sounds, you know what I'm coming to. I have an obligation. Somebody gave me access to higher education. And now I have this wonderful platform to make sure that people get access. That's how I came to this. That's an incredible story. And as you said, now you've got the platform. You're at a place where your passion for all Marylanders to have the right to higher education is something you're going to be working toward. But you're facing a lot of challenges. Can you talk about that? And how are you going to break it down and the whole thing? Well, I want to touch again on something that Doro mentioned in her opening comments, the matter of this virus affecting people disproportionately. And if we're to be direct about it, it affects lower socioeconomic groups disproportionately for all kinds of reasons. But even to be putting a finer point on it, people of color, underserved minorities. And that is layered on the context of everything else that is going on in the country now. And that brings me to the platform and higher education. We've had a commitment to making sure that the kids that come from families that are in the lowest quartile in terms of socioeconomic status get to college. And yet the track record is poor, no matter our efforts. It's so important now. You know, I'm not smart enough to know all of the factors that cause this virus to hit the poor and to hit minorities harder than the rest of us. But some of it has got to be attributable to what we call the social determinants of health. Yeah, I am a physician. I know the importance of making a correct diagnosis and prescribing the right treatment. But for poor people, people that don't live in good conditions, in terms of their housing, they have no income, they're not health literate. Those are the people who you can make a correct diagnosis and prescribe the right therapy for. But if you don't deal with everything else that they're dealing with, you haven't done anything because most of the time it's not going to work. One of the things that keeps poor people poor is the fact that they don't have the same opportunity for education. I spend a lot of time in West Baltimore. I have programs in some of the elementary and middle schools you know what I've learned? I've learned that talent is pretty universal. And what's not universal is opportunity. And that's what our collective obligation is, to remove the obstacles, make opportunity, and get these kids to college. Now, that brings me finally to making the point that our university resources are extraordinary. We've been well supported by the taxpayer. We've done well in Maryland. But we need to put those campuses back into play. Despite this scourge that is upon us, we've got to do what we can do safely to get these campuses open to the degree that they are particularly available to the very people who are so affected by the virus. 
those opportunities on campus are disproportionately important, in my view, to the underprivileged among us. And that's one of the things that drives us to figure out how we're going to navigate this very significant health threat and try to do as much as we can on campus and get the people that need to come to campus there. It's not a quick fix, but if we are going to dismantle structural racism, then the kids that are coming up now need to have a chance to succeed. That is my approach, my contribution to dealing with the myriad of issues that need to be addressed that are clearly being surfaced now. We have to commit ourselves to making K-12 education better. And we are challenging ourselves at the university system where we could do what higher education has done. We could say, well, that's not us. You send these kids prepared to us, we'll take care of them like we're some sort of a centerpiece and all of the qualified people will come to us. We have no responsibility till they come to us. I don't agree with that. I think that we have a responsibility to figure out what we can do as higher education folks to serve K-12 education better so that by the time kids that want a college education come to us, they don't have to be remediated. Remediation costs money, but more than money, it causes discouragement to a young person who comes to college, looking forward to college, and then can't do the work. So why should we do it that way? Why should we fix the problem after it's a problem? Why don't we make our contribution to preventing the problem? And what does that look like specifically? How do you do that? We have a tremendous problem in the healthcare occupations in terms of diversity and inclusion. Here's a statistic. The number of African-American males that matriculated to medical schools in the United States in 2018 is about the same number as the number of African-American male medical students that matriculated in 1978. Meanwhile, the African-American population of this country has doubled, but it's remained flat for 40 years in medical schools. Now, that's not for lack of trying. I don't want to imply that at all. There have been plenty of efforts to try to increase the number of African-American students, particularly males, in medicine, in dentistry, in nursing, etc., and we don't make a dent. Now, that's as important as it's a matter of social justice and fairness. There's a more important issue. The healthcare literature shows that people will have better outcomes if they are cared for by somebody that comes from their culture, their life experience, looks like them. That shouldn't be surprising, but there are actually data to support it. And with regard to healthcare inequities, the people that are going to do the research to answer why an African-American male with prostate cancer is likely to do much worse than me if I had prostate cancer. Why is that? Is it biology? Is it behavior? Is it when they finally get to medical care? It has to be answered. And the people that are most likely to do that research are the people that have the passion for it, namely, my aunt died of breast cancer or I had an uncle with prostate cancer. That's the way people often focus on research needs. So we've got to get people into the pipeline. And as I said, there have been many efforts to try to increase the diversity in healthcare professions. 
and the importance being the reasons I discussed. So why has it failed? When you talk to people who've set up programs over the years to draw promising young people, minorities that can do the work, into healthcare, they're all focused on finding that jewel coming out of high school, that wonderful student early in college, and then, yes, hanging on to them, mentoring them, paying for their education, and bringing them along. But when you talk to the same people that run these programs, they say, you know what the problem is? The pool is too small. The pool of people that you can find like that. So our hypothesis was, sure, it's too small because you're starting too late. Goes back to the K-12 education business. By the time young people are at the end of high school, unfortunately, too many of them haven't had the best mentoring, the best environment the best counseling, the pool is too small. So what should you do? Well, our hypothesis was you need to start younger. The payoff will be much later in coming, but you need to start younger. So in West Baltimore, we started in the sixth grade in middle school, collecting young kids from several elementary schools. They weren't necessarily the best students, but they were people that their teachers thought would make a commitment and their parents were willing to make a commitment. And the program that I'm talking about has over 100 kids in it now. The oldest kids are in 11th grade, so I can't tell you about anybody that got a medical diploma yet. I hope I'm still around when one does, but you got to start somewhere. And those kids are mentored after school, and on Saturdays, we bring them into operating rooms, obviously, when patients are not there, so they can see the environment. They need to have hope, and they need to have preparation, and they need to be hung on to so that we can make a difference. So that's one example of how higher education can get down onto the street in the middle school, in the elementary school, and start giving our kids some hope and some mentoring and getting them to succeed. So what you're saying, and we're hearing loud and clear, is that education, you think, is the antidote to much of the systemic racism that we have in our country. I say that unequivocally. I'm not naive enough to think that it's the be-all and end-all. It's the only thing that needs to be focused on. God knows that's not the truth. But I am telling you, One way that we have to address and knock down this issue of disparities, of racism, of underprivilege, is to do everything we can to give our kids hope. About six or seven years ago, I had an opportunity to do a media event with the then mayor, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake. And the media event was staged with people from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and what was then called the Food Stamp Program. I think it's called the SNAP Program now. And it was done in an odd place. I don't know how many of your viewers know Baltimore, but there's an iconic market in Baltimore called the Lexington Market. Now, I will readily acknowledge to you that most people don't go to the Lexington Market to eat what we would call healthy foods. But believe it or not, There were vendors in the Lexington market that provided food that one would consider healthy, and in particular, healthy for kids. And the relevance of this is that on Saturdays, since there isn't a great deal of opportunity to shop in West Baltimore, 
and find fresh foods, families come with their kids to Lexington Market. So there may be 500 kids at Lexington Market on any given Saturday, and it becomes an important effort to find the healthy food. So anyway, we did this media event, and I made a speech, and the mayor made a speech, and the USDA official made a speech. But then we had an activity, and the activity was called food art. Now, I didn't know what food art is. Maybe you two do. But here was the deal. I sat at the head of a table with about eight third graders on either side of the table. And on the table were sliced apples that were carved in the shape of race car sides. And there were grapes and there were toothpicks. So you get the picture. The idea was that by assembling those things correctly, you could make a race car out of fruit. And so the mayor sat at one table, I sat at another table. And, you know, I start fiddling with the fruit. And there was this cute kid, an eight-year-old kid, next to me, and he could see I was terrible at it. So he says to me, here, I'll help you. And I was glad to take the help. And I found out that his name was Xavier. And, you know, I'm a pediatrician. So I did the usual thing. And I said, so Xavier, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, he gave me the usual response that you get from eight or nine-year-old kids, particularly kids in West Baltimore. He starts telling me about the NBA and the NFL. Now, this kid was a sharp kid because he probably noticed from the look on my face that I was not impressed, that I was not convinced. And he just turned on a dime and he looked me straight in the face and he said, or maybe I'll have your job. Now, you know, I suppressed a smile. Everybody does when I tell the story or laughs out loud, not laughing at Xavier, but the cuteness of it. But, you know, I have never forgotten that comment. I think about it often. Or maybe I'll have your job. You know, between that eight-year-old kid in West Baltimore and my job, it's about a thousand obstacles. And that's what I think our responsibilities are in dealing with this matter of lack of privilege, structural racism. We got to work on those obstacles. And yes, that's where I see higher education. So COVID came, but really in a way, what we're hearing you say too, is that maybe this is what you were working on anyway. I mean, this was something you were bringing to the table anyway. And it just so happened that this came up for the whole world to see in real true light. Is that what happened? I think so, Tricia, because COVID, people see that as some sort of derailment of where I wanted to go. And I told you earlier why I wanted to take this job. I was finally maybe coming to the point where I could meet those obligations because I was being given these resources to oversee and wonderful colleagues to help me with the task. And you know the way I look at COVID? I look at COVID as sort of a reinforcement of why we need to do this. Because as you pointed out at the outset, look what's happened. Look at who's been disproportionately affected. COVID is sort of a driver. I know it's an overused word. It's sort of an accelerant to deal with the issues we've been talking about. 
So specifically, how is this fall going to look? I know you're eager to get open. What specifically are you planning and how is it going to look? It's all predicated on safety. All of what we're saying is up to the virus and what it's doing at the time in our communities. But assuming it's safe and assuming we can make it as safe as possible, which, by the way, does not mean that we're going to guarantee a COVID-free environment. That is just not reasonable and realistic. We have to do everything we can to keep people as safe as possible. But with that commitment, we are going to open our institutions in mid to late August And we are going to teach in a hybrid fashion. We're going to do what we can do safely on campus because we know a lot of students, including a lot of the people we're talking about, need to have that campus environment for the socialization in order to learn from each other, in order to experience something different from each other. Those are the things that happen on campus. We got to put those resources in play. But we're going to rely heavily on distance learning, on elegant distance learning. And we're going to ask our students to learn from anywhere and everywhere. And it'll be mix and match depending on the environment, depending on what can be taught best online versus what needs to be taught in person. A lot of our institutions are probably going to finish up at Thanksgiving rather than, you know, what we all used to do, which is to go home for Thanksgiving. You remember all that? And then come back for the last couple of weeks and finals. You probably finish up at Thanksgiving, maybe do the rest of what I just talked about online so that everybody doesn't need to travel extra coming back to Thanksgiving and go home for the holidays again. We're going to do that. And students that don't want to come back to campus or can't because they have an underlying condition, employees as well, you know, we can flip it. The faculty member who shouldn't come back to campus, they can teach from home and the students can be on campus or online. We're pretty prepared. And how much are you in contact with other university systems in the country? Are you in constant conversation with each other or is everybody doing their own thing? Fortunately, there is an organization called the National Association of System Heads, NASH. And there are also other organizations where we're constantly online. We may take different approaches. You know, the Cal State system has decided they're going to teach entirely online. But we're in contact with each other. And we're learning best practices. So absolutely, there is collaboration. How do you see this affecting a future higher education? Is this a long term? How do you see this affecting it? And again, our students, our kids, how do you see it? We are going to need to be mindful that what we used to call the traditional students, our generation, our kids' generation, you got done with high school, you went to college, you were 18 to 22 years old. Those people are still going to be there, but we need to be as mindful or more of a lot of other kind of learners. That is something we're focused on, even before COVID. I'm talking about, let's say, the 25 to 44-year-old, somebody that's married, got a family, got a job, can't enjoy one of our campuses. We've got to be able to cater to them because a lot of that population, we call them SCND, some college, no degree. And getting a degree is still valuable in terms of your economic picture. So we've got to be able to serve that population. We've got to be able to serve 20 million people out of work. Not all those jobs are going to be there for them. I'm not crazy about these terms, words like reskilling and upskilling. You know, I've had to get used to them. But you know what I'm getting at. 
there are going to be other kinds of jobs. And we have to do our part as a university system to help those people prepare for a new economy, a new world where different kinds of jobs are present. You know, my daughter is a rising senior at the University of Maryland main campus, and she has been telling me, and what I've been seeing is there's been great communication between the faculty and the students. And as long as I think everyone's talking and communicating with each other, we can all get through this. You're absolutely right. None of what we're planning is going to work unless there is an esprit de corps, unless we all feel that we're responsible for each other. So we can say that the students need to wear masks and be careful about the parties and all that. But everybody's got to buy into it because they feel it's the right thing to do. And that's a particular challenge for us. And I hope we can, with everybody's help, rise together to a point where we have a social contract. We all are responsible for each other. So We'll see how that goes with the students. I know your daughter will be right in the middle and helpful. (laughs) I think so. Certainly she'll be listening to this podcast. (laughs) Two more questions. One is, are you still a pediatrician now? We've heard you say that's your fun. (laughs) Oh, you're right. And thank you for asking that. Yes, I happen to be a pediatric gastroenterologist. So my career has been one of taking care of children with digestive diseases, nutritional problems liver disease, and I have never given up practicing. Now, I can't do what I used to do, and as president at UMB and now as chancellor with the agreement of the regents, I still see patients on Tuesday afternoons. They are patients, like I described, children and their families, but very importantly, and I want to make this point because we were talking about the social determinants of health. When I see patients I have students from each of the professional programs. So I'm not just teaching medical students my discipline. And I don't really care whether the medical students, the nursing students, the pharmacy students, the dental students, the physician's assistants, the law students, the social work students. These are all people that come and see patients with me. And what's the point? Most of them are not going to be practicing pediatric gastroenterology. But I want to teach the students of the various professions to appreciate each other because healthcare now needs to be team-based care and particularly for people that have the social determinants of health. If I, as I was talking about earlier, prescribe a treatment that needs somebody to put a medication in the refrigerator and the electric's been turned off, what point is it for me to make that prescription? But I don't know how to get the electric turned back on, but the social worker does. People have to learn to appreciate each other. You just bring up such a great point, and that's something that we want our listeners to hear and to understand. Something that's very close to Dora and I is we do a lot of work in literacy, and health literacy is something that marries both passions for Dora and I. So talk to us about that. This summer, arising from our clinic, we have taken advantage of health literacy experts at College Park in order to make health literacy a focus of our social determinants of health consideration. Again, what good does it do to make elegant diagnoses and write scripts if somebody doesn't understand what you're talking about, which is not their fault? Maybe that's sort of an outcome of this, you know, like looking for the things that we can change faster now. And we're hoping it's health literacy and we're hoping we're part of that. Dr. Perman, I know your family has been hugely inspirational in your life. Who are your mentors and confidants? 
Well, nobody substituted for my parents, Doro. You know, I mentioned them at the outset of the podcast and told you a little bit about my early life. But I'll close with this story, if I may, in order to make a point to you about mentoring and my parents. I told you that we had this little hand laundry and dry cleaners. It was in a neighborhood that was diverse. These are people that weren't well resourced. So they used to bring their clothes in. And, you know, my father used to notice that here and there, there was a hole in a pair of pants or a pocket ripped. And I had told you earlier that my mother was a seamstress, so she could sew. So here's what I used to watch. My father used to bring the torn pair of pants over to my mother at the sewing machine and say, please, sew this up. And my mother, who understood that bills needed to be paid, said, well, fine, I'll sew it up, but you're going to charge him, aren't you? I mean, I knew the whole script. And he would say, please, he has no money. What did I learn from that? I learned from my father the importance of compassion and empathy. But I also learned from my mother, no money, no mission. Those were valuable lessons for me. You know, I've had an amazing career privileged to have so many stops along the way. And that takes somebody that's your partner who, when you come and say, in my case, Andrea, 51 years of marriage, you know, they want me to consider this. And she'd always give the perfect response. You want to do it? That's fine. That's amazing. It's been such a pleasure to meet you virtually and to have you on our podcast. And we admire you and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Doro. Thank you, Tricia, for having me here. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Tricia. And I'm Doro. Be well.